So it was a Monday morning, uh, October 17th, uh, to be exact. And I was going through LinkedIn, just checking to make sure I didn't miss out on, uh, you know, some kind of new management technique, you know, live an exciting life filled with management best practices, FOMO. And there it was, um, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, shared a press release about a study published by a team at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, or NIEHS, and it said, quote, women who use chemical hair straightening products were at a higher risk for uterine cancer compared to women who did not report using these products, unquote. And I just, I just stopped, you know, I'm like, hmm, really? I actually found a causal link? Really? And my next thought was, well, how, how did they do that? I mean, how did they find this out? So, you know, I went and I tracked down the study and I read it. And to be clear, it's it's from the sister study. And, you know, they're focused on breast cancer mainly. But, you know, they'll report links on other things that they find other cancers, especially. And it's an epidemiological study. It's not like a clinical trial used to prove drug safety or that drug is effective. Uh, epidemiological studies are more focused on correlations and associations. So, you know, at best, what you're going to be able to get out of these is some kind of mathematical relationship between things, say, you're doing something and a cancer. But what they can't do with these is assign causation just based on study results, because correlation is not causation, after all. So it was kind of interesting. And today, what we're going to talk about is what I like to call a tale of uterine cancer hair products and bad stats with just a little fear mongering thrown in for clicks. I'm Dr. Lyle Bergoon, and from Raptor Media, this is Critical Science. So you've heard the phrase correlation is not causation. I think I actually just said it a few seconds ago. And yeah, I want to start at that point because this is kind of important to understand. And, you know, you might hear a lot of people say the phrase correlation is not causation or an association is not causation, which is great. I mean, really, it, it should be your morning mantra. I mean, you know, just get to whatever position you like to meditate in. Correlation is not causation. Correlation is not causation. Yeah, you know, right. You, you repeat that phrase during your morning meditations or whatever morning routine you do. And yeah, you know, it might actually calm you down after reading the types of things that you see on the news or watching the news. But anyway, back to correlation. So correlation, correlation is kind of interesting. A lot of people don't realize correlation is, is based mostly on shape. So mathematically, we say that two things are correlated if they have the same shape. The numbers don't have to be exactly the same. So if you had a pattern, let's say one, two, three, four, five, and then you had another pattern, let's say 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Well, that's a correlation of one. They have the same pattern. The only difference really is that the second group of numbers is just the first group multiplied by 10. Now, what if we were to change that second one, right? So we had 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Well, that's also highly correlated with one, two, three, four, five. Honest. It's true. But this time, it's a correlation of negative one. 
And you can play all sorts of fun games with this. You know, you can do like uh, uh, one ten five one two. That's strongly correlated with one uh, with a ten. Uh, multiply by ten, so be a hundred. That is fifty, ten, and twenty. Again, the second series is the first times ten, right? So the first series again was one ten five one two. Multiply those times ten, and you got ten, a hundred, fifty, ten, twenty. You're going to get a correlation of one again. So it's kind of interesting, right? And because correlation is only based on the shape of the two series, it's easy to find things that are related by correlation, but they don't actually have any other relationship. They're just correlated. They have nothing to do with each other in any way, shape, or form other than the fact that they just kind of have the same shape. So this becomes even easier if you're willing to lower your bar for what's considered correlated or associated. So... You know, perfect correlation is one. So if you're willing to accept maybe 30% or 50% as correlated, uh, it becomes even easier to find shapes that are similar. So consider this pattern. Um, the first pattern is going to be one, two, three, four, five, right? We've been using this one the whole time. But your second pattern is going to be 10, 0, 0, 0, 32. What do you think the correlation is between these? Uh, I'll wait. Okay, I can't wait that long. All right, ready? Ready? Okay. Here we go. That's a correlation of 50%. Yeah, 50%. So a case where we have non-zero numbers at only the beginning and the end, and it's a correlation of 50%. Think about that for a second. One, two, three, four, five is our first pattern. 10, 0, 0, 0, 32. And that's a correlation of 50%. So it's kind of interesting, right? kind of scary too it's kind of scary how easy it is to get a fairly large correlation right so oh here here i got another one for you this one's fun this pattern is going to be one two three four five that's our first pattern and the second one's going to be ten zero zero forty and fifty what's the correlation i'm gonna wait don't worry i'll wait all right i'm not gonna wait that long if you need more time hit pause i'm gonna it's 81 percent yeah isn't that wild 81 percent it's crazy doesn't take much for it to be 81%, does it? Hmm. So next time you see somebody talking about a correlation or an association, or you're looking at an epi study, an epidemiology study, and they say that, hey, there's this big correlation. Yeah, right? Uh, it doesn't take much to get a good correlation. All right, so let's, let's, let's jump into this paper. So here in this paper, the NIHS scientists are looking for a relationship between someone using... Uh, straightening, relaxer, or pressing products more than four times in the year preceding uh, the person enrolling in the study and the development of uterine cancer. Now, you might be asking yourself, how do they choose four times as their threshold? Why not five times? Why not 50 times? Why not three times? I don't entirely know. And those are all really, really, really reasonable questions that you really should ask. Now, what the authors say is that they use the distribution of the data they had. I have no idea what that means. They don't show us the distribution. So I can't tell you why they made those particular cuts. Uh, we just know that they made it based on something they saw in the distribution. So, you know, this is one of those things we call researcher degrees of freedom. They made a choice. Seemingly, they have a reason for their choice. That's cool. But interestingly, they made these same cuts for the use of permanent dyes, use of semi-permanent dyes, 
as well as the category we actually care about, which is straighteners, relaxers, or pressing products. So next we're going to look at how many people they use in their study that never use these straighteners, relaxers, or pressing products. And that's actually a pretty large number. It comes out to 30,329 people. Now, how many of those people developed uterine cancer? Well, it's 332 people. So that's roughly about 1.09%. And how many people in the state use straighteners, relaxers, or pressing products four times or less in the prior year, in year prior to enrolling in studies? Well, that comes out to 1,464 people. And so how many of those people developed uterine cancer? Well, it's 12 people. It's uh, roughly 0.8%. And then how many people in the study who used straighteners, relaxers, or pressing products more than four times in the year prior to enrolling in the study? How many, how many are those people? Well, that's 1,572 people. It, then how many of those develop uterine cancer? Well, it's 26, or roughly 1.65%. So I threw a bunch of numbers at you, so let's, let's slow this down, and let's go back over this. So the base cancer rate in the people who never use these products is 1.09%. In people who use these products that we care about four times or less, that's 1,464 people, they had a uterine cancer rate at about 0.8%. And then there was uh, 1,572 people who used these products four more than four times in the year prior to enrolling in the study. And they saw a cancer rate of about 1.65%. So again, the base cancer rate in the people who never use these products is 1.09%. And there's like 30,000 of these people. That's a pretty good sample. I'd probably believe that 1.09% number. Now, the question I have in my analysis, uh, this is question four. So if you go into the show notes, you can click on uh, um, a link to get to my analysis and in that report, I have question number four, and that really is, if we use the base cancer rate of 1.09% and we were to randomly sample 1,572 people, that is the number of people who use these products four times or more in the year prior to enrollment, how many people might we see that develop uterine cancer? This is a very important question because if I take 1.09% as the cancer rate, and I take 1,572 people from the population, and 26 people comes back as a reasonable number, well, then that means that 26 people could have developed those cancers when the rate is 1.09%, which means there'd be no difference in the cancer rates between the people who were never exposed and those who were exposed to the straighteners, relaxers, or pressing products. You get what I'm saying? Let me break this down a little bit differently. NIEHS's conclusion is that people who use these products more than four times a year, in the year prior to enrolling in the study, I should be very clear, have a higher cancer rate than those who didn't. But if 26 people is a reasonable number of people, given a 1.09% cancer rate, and given that we sampled the same number of people as those who use the products more than four times in the year prior to enrolling in the study, well, that would mean that 1.09% is a reasonable cancer rate for those people. And that there really isn't 
any evidence that there is a difference in cancer rates between these two groups of people. Does that make sense? Let's just let that sink in for a little bit. So NIEHS has 1,572 people. And of those, they report that 26 developed urine cancer. NIEHS says, you know, that's probably like a 1.65% urine cancer rate, which is a higher rate than 1.09. So therefore, the cancer risk is higher in those 1,572 people who use the products more than four times in a year prior to enrollment. But what I'm saying is, hold on a second, wait. A 1.09% uterine cancer rate can give you 26 people developing uterine cancer out of 1,572 people. So you can't conclude that using these products more than four times a year prior to enrollment is associated with a higher cancer rate because you can't reject the null hypothesis that the base uterine cancer rate in your unexposed group is any different from the exposed group because 1.09% is giving you the same number that you observed in the group that was using the products a lot. And that, that null hypothesis I mentioned, that's what we actually need to test. And because 26 out of 1,572 is completely consistent with the uterine cancer rate in the unexposed group, you simply cannot say that there's a link or association. And certainly you cannot, include, you cannot conclude that in NIH's words, quote, women who use chemical hair straightening products are at a higher risk for uterine cancer compared to women who did not report using these products, unquote. You simply can't make that conclusion. That's inconsistent with the data. That's, that's like me saying, hey, there's this treatment effect due to something, but just trust me. Because the math says it's true. No, 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 don't compare the treatment effect to what you might see under the control. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter if you get the same result under control conditions. No, no. What matters is that this other technique that assumes they are different rates confirms that they are different rates. Now, I'm not going to tell you if I'm doing the math right or that my data are consistent with the math I'm doing. Just, just trust me on this. So what this is consistent with, what their results are consistent with, is the idea that the noise or the uncertainty, is being mistaken by the NIEHS scientists as signal. And that's kind of a recurring theme we have. We see this a lot. When you have small sample sizes, which is what's happening in this particular case, 1,527 people is not a lot of people. That's a small sample size. But you have that, that part doesn't matter as much as the sample size associated with how many people are actually into cancers. 26 people, that's an extremely tiny sample size. So it's more likely that what we're seeing is this is noise that's being passed off as signal. And one last thing, even if I are wrong about everything I just told you over the past few minutes, even if we still can't use the results of the study to say anything prognostic about the U.S. population. Why? Why am I making that statement? Well, it's because of this. The demographics of the women in this study does not in any way even begin to represent the demographics of the women in our country. 85.6% of the women in this study are non-Hispanic whites. You heard me right. 85.6%. Wow. Wow. That's way too high to represent the U.S. population. Way too high. In the year 2000, 
white people, and that is white people who are white only, not Hispanic or Latinx, made up only 70.9% of the population. And that's before this study was done. Only 70.9%, not 79%, 70.9% of the population were white only, not Hispanic or Latinx. Only 7.4% of the women are black African-American in this study. According to the 2000 census, blacks or African-Americans made up 12.3% of the population. 4.4% of the women in this study are Latina. 2.5% are some other race or ethnicity. In all, the non-white populations are roughly half what they should be based on the 2000 census figures in this study. But think about that for a second. 85.6% are non-Hispanic or non-Latina white women. So we have a study of a lot of white women. And it's going to be hard to infer much of anything about women of color because they aren't being represented at the right demographic percentages. As a person of color myself, I'm just floored that NIH and NIEHS are trying to raise alarms about the potential hair product use when the population they're studying mostly doesn't even use the products that they're saying are a problem. This is the perfect recipe for sampling bias. Not only that, but to then try to say that these results are representative of the U.S. population, well, that's, just, that's just not right. We cannot translate any of the results from this study to the U.S. population in any meaningful way. The study is just so completely biased. So what are the ramifications here? We have a case where scientists from NIHS, which is part of NIH, are doing what they think is right. And that's good. They put out a press release and they want people to know what they found. And they're getting a ton of press on this. I mean, I've seen this now on CNN, CNBC, CBS News, you name it. You know, you'll see it everywhere. They're getting press interviews. This is great. I feel very good for them that, you know, they're able to get all this outreach and let people know about this. You know, but the issue is these results aren't right. These results are no different from the unexposed group. These results, you know, of the study are not translatable to the general U.S. population. So although I give them credit for getting their message out there, I'm very concerned that now we have a lot of people who are scared that their hair products are going to give them cancer. And I'm very concerned that we have a lot of people who work in salons who are now also probably very scared. And this is what we call science by press release. And sure, it's important for people to find out that there may be issues with products they buy. I fully agree with that. But we need to base these kinds of warnings on good science. And it needs to be done in in the study population needs to represent the U.S. population much better than this one does. Because when those things don't happen, then we're just scaring people for no good reason. Even if the analysis results are true, this is the key thing. The language being used needs to convey what we actually know. And the language needs to make clear that these are associations and not causal relationships. These are correlations. It's easy to get really big, scary correlations when there is no actual relationship. These things need to be communicated to the public. 
And when you read the press releases and when you read the press covering it, that doesn't always come out. So for me, the bottom line is this. There, there is no relationship between hair product use, especially the use of straighteners, relaxers, and pressing products, and uterine cancer. Based on this data, there simply is no relationship. Again, to me, this is another case of small sample sizes driving a false positive narrative. We can see quite clearly that the cancer rates in the control group can yield the same results that NIEHS scientists saw in the group that used the products more than four times in a year prior to enrollment in the study. This is just simply a case of noise masquerading a signal. Now let's not forget that we can't even use these results to generalize to the U.S. population because remember, 85.6% of the women in the study are white. That is much larger than the U.S. population. It's much larger than the U.S. population right now. We don't have a representative number of people of color in this study. It's all mostly white women. And for those reasons, we have to just stop scaring people. These results just simply don't support the conclusions that are in the press releases and that NIH and NIEHS are pushing. Anyway, thanks, everyone. Uh, This is another episode of Critical Science, uh, all wrapped up with a nice, pretty bow. I'm Lyle Bergoon. Uh, This is uh, Raptor Media, and I'll talk at you another time. Thanks.